Good morning, church. Well, today, for us, it's always a sports analogy, right? But it's like the Super Bowl. It's like the Super Bowl. You're on the winning team. You're holding up the Lombardi Trophy. And you can say, I'm going to Disneyland. Get on your Mickey Mouse ears. Because, I mean, this is this is it. This is This is what we, as believers, live for. And if you're not converted yet, this is what Jesus is trying to reveal to you. Amen. The fact that his son went to the cross, died a sinner's death, redeemed your soul with his perfect blood. And not only did that, but on the third day rose from the dead. As, uh, as, as Michelle alluded to, there's no other world religion that can boast of that. That's what separates Christianity from all the other world religions. Any supposed God, little g, or any deity that has ever lived, guarantee you they're still in their graves. People will go to the grave sites of these people who were great prophets, so to speak, or were, uh, again, deities or, or, or little g's, and they go and worship them. Again, we call that idolatry. But there is only one true risen Lord. That is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. It's an exciting day. It's great. It's great. Um, so as you know, we're, I did pray about it, and, and the Lord did uh, reveal to me that, yeah, we, we would take a break from the book of Revelation. So um, <clears throat> I hope you're ready to, if you have an old school Bible, you can be turning a lot of pages. Because we're, we're going to focus on two main verses, but there's a lot of scripture Right. I can't exhaust the word of God. We all believe that the whole Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So with that, uh, we'll be in John chapter 11. We'll go through verses 25 through 26 and uh, we'll go ahead and pray and uh, we'll see what the Lord has in store for us this morning. So uh, when you get there, if you can and you're able body, please stand for the reading of God's word. And uh, we'll go ahead and begin. Once again, we're in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. And this message is entitled, The Resurrection and the Life. And it says, John said, uh, excuse me, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? (laughs) Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this revelation, this awesome truth that your son Jesus Christ conquered sin and death, and he is the resurrection and the life. And that anyone, any person who believes that this is true shall not face spiritual death, but they will be with you in eternity forever, be in paradise forever. Lord, we pray now that you would speak to our hearts through this passage. Would you reveal to us how this is so applicable to our lives in this day and age? May we not even look at this, uh, this message or this sermon as, oh, this would be great for so-and-so or someone else that, that, that I know, but may it penetrate our own hearts personally. May we take it uh, very personal and serious, uh, the offer that's been given to us and the fact that you've given us the opportunity to have eternal life with you forever. So, Lord, may you receive all honor, glory, and praise We thank you and we love you. We pray this all in your son, Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. All right. So uh, in the Christian faith, this this week that we've just come out of uh, is known as Holy Week. And today, if you will, is the capstone of that week. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Once again, No other so-called God can make claim to that. No one can say that they've raised from the dead. You know, we we live in a in a time in society now where 
inclusion is such a big deal. It's like, you got to include everybody. You can't leave anybody out. If you, if you say one little thing wrong about somebody, oh man, they're on your back about it. It's just not a good thing. But if you, if you, if you look at the word of God, and if you, you hone in on, on Jesus Christ and the things that he said when he walked upon this earth during his earthly ministry, he actually is the originator of inclusion. He's the originator of inclusion. All you have to do is go to this famous verse that everybody and their mama knows. You'll see it in between goalposts at football games. Even though I don't know why they don't read the whole passage, because the whole passage <laughs> tells you everything. But nonetheless, John 3.16 is a beautiful verse, right? And it says, So, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The main point in that that you see here about inclusion, he says, whoever, whoever, doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter what cultural background you come from, doesn't matter what your, uh, your economic status is, doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Do, you, do we understand that even, even a person that has, and I'll be bold and say it, someone that has taken the life of someone else, that has shed blood, they can be forgiven. <laughs> they can receive eternal life. Or do we think, no, it's not for someone like that. I hope we're not in that boat where we're pious is to think that, you know, oh, well, oh, you know, Jesus is only reserved for, for a certain group of people that didn't do X, Y, and Z. You know, the cross is the great equalizer. At the foot of the cross, we're all the same. We're all born wretched sinners. If you want to use that term, everyone came into this world with their birthday suit on and everyone's going to exit with everything left behind to someone else, and you'll be in that birthday suit again, whether you go into a casket or they cremate your body. But the hope is, <laughs> in Jesus Christ, there's redemption for one's soul, and you can have an eternity of peace with him forever. If you look at human history, and I'm not talking about all that's gone on as far as what we've done as people and man and woman's mere accomplishments. But I'm talking about the timeline, God's timeline, right? If you look at that, 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 that compound word, history, his story. I'm surprised they haven't tried to change that nowadays and say, well, it can't be his story. God bless you. I don't know what they would use, but they would kind of use some non-binary term. Because they don't want to give glory and they don't want to say God is masculine in that, in that sense. They don't want to give deity to his name in that way. But in human history, there are really only four main highlights or milestones, if you will. But it all depends on your perspective and how you're viewing, how you're viewing life. What is your, what is your worldview? But from a biblical perspective, there are really only four main highlights or milestones. And the first one is this, the birth of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ came into the world he created, 100% God, 100% man, born from a virgin. And why did Jesus Christ come to this planet? Did he just come to be a great teacher? Did he just come to encourage people? Did he come to, to help people be more confident in who they are? Well, we'll just look at Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, and it tells us specifically why Jesus Christ came to this planet he created. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, somebody better say amen, because that's a beautiful thing. Do you realize, do you understand that we're all poor in the sight of God? You could be Bill Gates but spiritually be bankrupt. doesn't matter what you have monetarily. 
what we can see, what is tangible, what is considered a value in this world we live in. But every human being is born into this world spiritually poor and bankrupt. But he says he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight to the blind. We were all spiritually blind at one point. The, the, the veil over the eyes of our hearts spiritually was covered because of sin and we were oppressed. But he has come to proclaim good news, the year of the Lord's favor. He came to set the captives free, free from sin, free from guilt, free from shame, free from sin, free from the clutches of death. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all struggled with sin. We've all struggled with guilt. We've all struggled with shame. We've all had anxiety about the thought of death setting in. But you don't have to have that anxiety anymore. You don't have to uh, struggle with those things because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has conquered sin, death, and the grave. He's all, he also came to this earth to, to show us how to love like him. First John chapter four, verse nine tells us in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. What a great love that is. That's what the Bible talks about that long suffering love. How many of you have experienced that long suffering love? How many of you have tried to apply that long-suffering love to those nearest and dearest to you? You kind of get a glimpse, glimpse excuse me, of the challenges that Jesus faced. Even though he was 100% God, he dealt with human beings that are, were, were, were faulty at best. And yet he had long-suffering love and he dealt with every person that he encountered with such great long-suffering love. That if we accepted his gift of salvation, that we might be able to truly live through him. That's the first, uh, that's the first line uh, in human history or a milestone, if you will. The second one is this. Jesus Christ came to this earth to lay down his life. You see, he came to live a perfect life so his sinless blood could be shed. So humanity could have an opportunity to be saved. And for many of us, that may just seem like review. I've heard this. I grew up in a Christian home. I've heard this all my life. Well, the, the proper perspective should be that you just grow a deeper sense of adoration and respect and honor and praise and love for God because what he has done. Do we understand that? We would all be hell bound if God did not send his only son says his only son the tr it's not four people it's not four persons it's the trinity it's god the father jesus christ the son and the holy spirit they're all equal in their holiness but they're separate in function there's there's no one else there only jesus christ could come and do what he he had done do we understand and, and anyone who studied well in, in the jewish history understood that the day of atonement what that meant and having to get a perfect am animal a spotless animal and shed its blood for the remission of sins for just one year now if jesus christ never came and died that sinner's death upon the cross his perfect blood shed we would still be practicing that or we'd be off into some weird practice trying to figure out how we could make ourselves right before a holy god but praise our heavenly father that he gave his one and only son that we could be redeemed. Amen? Without Jesus Christ laying down his life, there is no cure for our dreadful circumstance. Speaking of humanity, there's no cure for humanity's circumstance without the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 tells us this. And, you know, some people get they get weirded out about it. They're like, man, why, why, why is blood got to be in the mix? It's just awkward. It's weird. I don't understand why, you know, this talk of blood. We have to go back to the Old Testament. But here we see it in, in Hebrews in the New Testament. But it's still in regards to why blood must be shed. And, and in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it tells us, Indeed, under the law, 
Almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood is so important because there is life in the blood. You take any of us here and you drain all the blood out of our bodies and what's going to happen? You're not going to be living. You're not going to be alive very long. Uh, your, your heart needs that blood to pump. Your, your body needs it. There's just so much going on with the blood. And it was the blood of Jesus Christ that purifies a sinner and saves a sinner from eternal death, but gives us the opportunity to have eternal life. You see, he bore the punishment that we should have received. When you think about that, it, it's super heavy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I look at myself and, you know, I'm, I just think just a moment ago, I'm, I'm holding my, my, my daughter in my arms and, you know, I love her dearly and my son, I love him dearly. And I'm so glad Jesus Christ died because as much as I love my children, I'm a wretched sinner and I can't save their souls and I can't make them right. A parent's love is so deep for their children. Every parent that is in here that has had a, a, a child knows that. But your love can't save them. The best your love can do is point them to the Savior. Right. I truly believe as, as parents and just as people in general, as believers, our, our, our number one responsibility when it comes to those around us is to be the best table setters we could possibly be. You need to set the table, set the table in a way that when your children or your loved ones or even the people around you that you don't know, your co-workers that you don't know that well or whatever. When it's time to eat, you will have set the table so well that they will feel welcome to come and dine at the king's table. That's the best we can do. But that's why we need to point people to Jesus Christ. But when you think about what he had to bear and, and, and understand that that should have been on you, <laughs> that should have been on me, it's a very heavy. You see, he stood in our place and paid for a debt that we could never repay. I'm going to read this this verse, uh, this chapter, it's a short chapter, bear with me, but I, but I think it, it paints a beautiful picture of what our Lord and our Savior went through before he raised from the dead. It's Isaiah chapter 53, and it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the beautiful part here. Well, that was all beautiful too, even though it's very difficult to, to, to digest, honestly. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he 
shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I mean, that is just, that is the the, the most beautiful news you're ever going to hear. The fact that he thought it was a good thing that he died such a horrible death because he knew that in him laying down his life, Oh my goodness, there could be so much reconciliation, meaning uh, connecting back, brought back into right standing, having a right relationship. Have you ever had a relationship that was strained? Two parties and something happened and there was a rift between the two and all of a sudden the text messages aren't happening. The phone calls ain't happening. The FaceTime's not happening. You're avoiding that person when, you, when you're supposed to be seeing them. It's a horrible feeling, isn't it? It's a horrible feeling. Somebody in those two parties has to humble themselves. If neither party humbles themselves, that grief and that friction and that tension, it will just continue and grow into bitterness and grow into resentment and grow into hate, which will eventually produce spiritual death. But what does it feel like when that relationship is reconciled and one party or both parties humble themselves and say, I apologize. Please forgive me for what I did to you. You understand too, sometimes it's not even the person that thinks they did anything wrong that needs to humble themselves. Maybe the offended person needs to humble themselves. That's, that's, the, that's the high road that Jesus Christ took. He did nothing to deserve a wicked man's death. And yet he humbled himself. The one who did nothing wrong said, I'm sorry, forgive them. They know not what they do. And now, inclusion, I can't even say that word, (laughs) takes place. Anybody, whomever believes in him can have forgiveness of their sins. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, praise you, Lord Jesus. The third milestone in God's timeline is Jesus Christ rose from the dead to prove once again he alone has power over sin, death, and the grave. You see, he did this to show the world that all will be resurrected one day and that he is the resurrection, the truth, and the life. You see, the question one must ask themselves is, Who will I be resurrected to? You see, because everyone's going to resurrect. (laughs) Everyone's going to climb up out of that grave. Or I don't know how it's going to happen, but if they threw, you know, grandpa's ashes in uh, whatever, Lake Tahoe, somehow all them molecules and atoms are going to form back together. (laughs) And he's going to be standing before a holy and true God. Real talk. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is also important because it validates Jesus's claim, namely him being the son of God and the true Messiah. Another reason why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important is because it proves his sinless character and divine nature. The scriptures say God's holy one would never see corruption. And Jesus never saw corruption even after he died. He never sinned once. I mean, it's hard for us because it's like, man, we, we sitting here, we can sin. (laughs) The thought just pops up. You're like, I don't come into agreement with that. You know, you understand those things happen. We understand we're in a spiritual battle, right? Don't make me look like a weirdo up here. I know I'm not the only one where some just, just weird thought pops in your mind. It's because the enemy's like, dude, I don't want you hearing this. He definitely doesn't want you hearing this and acting upon it, right? Because then you're a problem. Now you're a threat. But if you're just a Christian that sits and listens, or if you're just a Christian who sits and (laughs) is is juggling different thoughts, he's like, you're nothing to me. But if you're engaged, 
If you're on the offensive and you're like, I'm in this, then you're a threat. And so those little things are going to come. But Jesus never saw corruption even after death. God bless you, sir. That's a grown man sneeze right there. That's that Paul Bunyan sneeze. He's coming with an axe about to chop down a redwood tree. (laughs) All right. The fourth milestone in the history of God's uh, you know, timetable, if you will, is he will one day return to right every wrong and render final judgment to all who have ever lived. You see, the second coming of Jesus Christ will be the return of Jesus to fulfill these remaining prophecies. You see, yay, see, the baby always knows. I love it. She's always on cue. You know, you, you, can't, you can't draw this stuff up. This ain't Hollywood. That's the Holy Spirit for sure. I believe it. Because, I mean, you know, you, I mean, you, can't, you can't drum it up. That was cool. In his first coming, Jesus was a suffering servant. But in his second coming, Jesus will be a conquering king. In his first coming, Jesus arrived in the most humble of circumstances. He was born a baby in a nasty, dirty, stinky, manure-filled manger. You know, you ever been to Emma Pruch or, 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 or any kind of farm? You know, I mean, it stinks. Flies everywhere, poo everywhere, hay everywhere. I ain't getting my Jordans, you know what I mean, with no poo scuffed up. I don't like it. You know, I'm a city boy. You know, country folks, they, they're fine with that. That's okay. But, you know, farm life is hard. It's rough. Farm strong. Like Tim Tebow, he's farm strong. That boy picking up bales and, you know, all that. But it, the farm's nasty. It smells. It's dirty. It's grimy. The water, it just looks tore up. You know, these animals just poo everywhere. That's where he was born. The savior of the world. He wasn't up in embassy suites or some five-star hotel, you know, with people waiting on him, bath water drawn, you know, all the fruit looking all perfect, freshly cut. No, he was thugging it out with some grimy animals, but he came humble. He came humble. In his second coming, Jesus will arrive with the armies of heaven at his side. Whew. That's far different from being in some dirty, nasty manger. (laughs) The armies of heaven riding with them. You see, the second coming is spoken of in the greatest detail in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 down through 16. And I'll read it for the sake of illustration. And it says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God, capital W, capital G. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think that's very (laughs) graphic illustration of, of what's going on with our Lord and Savior as he will return. And it's a beautiful thing if you're saved because you know, that's, that's my Savior. I'm with Him. Today we will be focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have several main points, and the first one is this. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Closed book, plain and simple. There's no way to refute it. It's pointless to refute it. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he was claiming to be the source of both. There is no resurrection apart from Jesus Christ, and there is no eternal life apart from him. Beyond that, Jesus was also making a statement concerning his divine nature. He does more than give life. You see, he is life. He himself. And therefore, death has no ultimate power over him. Jesus gives this spiritual life to those who believe in him so that they may too share in his triumph over death. 
1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 tells us, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son, capital S. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I mean, it's crystal clear right there. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you have eternal life. You have eternal life in Him. You have the hope of being at peace with Him for eternity. If you have not decided to make Jesus Christ your Savior and your Lord and invite Him into your heart, you do not have eternal life with Him. You see, believers in Jesus Christ will experience resurrection because having the life Jesus gives, it is impossible for death to defeat them. It's impossible. Now, we're all going to die a physical death, but death will not take you captive. Death will not hold you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 down through 57, excuse me, tell us, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, I mean, if that doesn't get you juiced, I don't know what will. A new Corvette don't cut it. I like sweets, but the best sweets in the world don't cut it. Brand new pair of shoes don't cut it. Uh, whatever HDM, whoever new, the super new TVs. 5K, whatever, that don't cut it. But the fact that death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's been swallowed up by our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory through him. That's a beautiful thing. Amen? The second main point is this. Nothing can stop the love of Jesus Christ. You see, his love creates life and brings back the dead. Jesus shows that neither death nor time is an obstacle obstacle to him for instance outside the tomb jesus called out in a loud voice lazarus come forth and the dead man came out he came out alive he came out alive not like some zombie not like the walking dead or whatever these hollywood movies try to depict of what uh, a dead person a zombie no he came back from the dead in the right state of mind not like some mindless zombie with some unclean spirit. It's one thing to claim to be the resurrection and the life, but Jesus proved it by raising Lazarus, who was dead for four days. You see, truly with Jesus Christ, death is nothing but deep sleep. You can read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Death has no dominion over him, who is life itself, nor does death have dominion over us if he is in us, if he lives in us, right? The Bible is clear. The temple of the living God is us. Our bodies inhabit the Holy Spirit. So if his godly spirit dwells in us, death has no power over us. Because he lives, we live. Because he is life, we have eternal life in him. You see, Jesus' statement that he is the resurrection and the life provides a godly perspective on several spiritual matters. In our context, in our, in our verses this morning, you see, Martha believed that the resurrection was an event. Like it was, was going to take place at a certain point in time. Remember, she said, oh, I know, Lord, that my brother will raise one day. But Jesus had to show her and he has to show us and remind us today that the resurrection is actually a person. It's not just some staple in time. He is the resurrection. 
He is the truth. He is the life. Martha's knowledge of eternal life was an abstract kind of idea. And Jesus provided that knowledge of eternal life. It's not vague. It's not abstract. It's a personal relationship. That's what we try to hammer down in this church. That it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it all boils down to. When everything is said and done, it's going to matter. Did you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Did I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? It's not going to matter about all the other X's and O's. That stuff's going to fall to the wayside. Half of that stuff is going to wither away anyways. You see, Martha thought victory over death was a future expectation. But Jesus corrects her, showing that victory is a present reality. Did you understand that today, right now, you have victory over sin and death? You don't have to come into agreement with sin. You don't have to come into agreement with the enemy. You don't have to come into agreement with death. Yes, we will all face a physical death, but it does not have power over you if you are a child of God. Amen? Today is the day of salvation. It is. It truly is. The third main point, and I'm juiced up today. The third main point is this. The gift of salvation that Jesus Christ offers is always up close and personal. It's never cold. It's never impersonal. And it's never from far away. Meaning... It is not some vague understanding of Jesus, nor is it some kind of formula that we can try to calculate and and come up with. It's not rituals, and it's not intellectual knowledge of Him. You see, many walk around and say, Oh, I'm a Christian. I do X, Y, and Z. What? I mean, that's cool. You could, you could feed the poor. I mean, we are commanded to, you know, help widows and orphans, but that doesn't save you. If that's the basis of you saying how you're a Christian, that's works. You already have a wicked heart. You're thinking that if I do good, then I'll be right with God. And on the basis of me helping widows and orphans, I have right standing with God. That's why people, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to say, I've heard it said before in my profession, in my line of work, that I've earned my wings. So you're telling me that because you work with special needs people, that all of a sudden you have favor with God and that you're right with God because you help somebody that's in a condition like that. That's works. That's work-based. And it's not about that. It's not about a formula. It's not about rituals. And it's not about, I know all these Bible verses. <laughs> it's good to memorize the Bible. I'm not knocking any of those things. And I'm not, wor- I'm not knocking working with orphans and widows or anything like that. But I'm saying that's not the premise of salvation and how it comes to you. You see, it is a personal relationship one must have with Jesus Christ. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you can't be right with God no other way but then accepting his gift of salvation. Remember uh, Simon the sorcerer, right? He was sadly mistaken. He tried to offer money. He said, let me buy this Holy Spirit so that wherever I may go, and I'm paraphrasing, that I can lay hands on people and I can cast out demons out of people and the Holy Spirit will come upon people. You see, Peter had to rebuke him because he was interested in signs and wonders and miracles. But he didn't have a heart for Jesus. He didn't want to know Jesus. He didn't want to have a relationship with him. He wanted all the exterior stuff. You know, sometimes we, we, we look good on the outside, but man, the cup is nasty. It's dirty. It's grimy. And the Lord's like, let me clean that up. <laughs> let, let, let me make your inside, your character, your integrity, your heart more, more like what, what your outside looks like. Because none of us go outside looking all bummy and trashy. We try to get all dressed up and cleaned up and, you know, obviously within our means, but we, we present ourselves a certain way. But Jesus is like, let me see your character flow like that. Let me give you the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me prune you and help you to, to, to produce healthy spiritual fruit so you can look good on the inside. So you can, so you can have the aroma that smells godly. The aroma of love, the aroma of long suffering, the aroma of of sacrifice, the aroma of being empathetic to people, the aroma of calling 
the truth, the truth and error, error. That's what he wants. You see, but, but Simon the sorcerer wanted to be seen by people in a certain light instead of simply seeking God to know him better. Acts chapter 8 verse 22 tells us, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven or may be forgiven you. You see, that's what we need. Even though that was specific to Simon the Sorcerer, we need that as well. We need to, to repent and, and ask God, be merciful upon us and, and change the condition of our hearts. What did, what did David pray? Lord, create in me a clean heart, renew in me a right spirit. Oh, I love that. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful prayer to pray. You know, we don't have to get original with prayers. I had to pray Bible verses, man, you know, as real, because the Lord hears that. He knows the intent of your heart. I'm like, Lord, my heart's wicked. Lord, change my heart, creating me a clean heart, renewing me a right spirit. And he does it. And that's just my job to make sure I stay on that line. It's your job to make sure you stay on that line once you get cleaned up. Don't go back to the pig pen. <laughs> don't go back to that pig pen. I don't care what Johnny Boy says. He ain't worth it. You see, after presenting himself... As the resurrection and the life, Jesus asks Martha an all-important question. And he says, do you believe this? Martha's answer and ours may it be the same. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. You see, Jesus Christ puts a demand upon our lives. You see, once you have heard the truth, once Jesus has revealed himself to you, you no longer can claim uh, ignorance. Like ignorance is a real thing, right? Like, like, I don't know. I'm ignorant of the situation. I don't have the proper information to make an informed decision. But once you have been made aware, you can't claim ignorance. He puts a demand on your life. He puts a demand on my life. We have to make a decision about who we say Jesus Christ is. And when we say, I, I don't know, <laughs> I'm on the fence, that's the same thing as saying, no, I, I don't believe. <laughs> you know, he, 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 he gets up close and personal. And many times, for, for many of us, it's uncomfortable. I know it was uncomfortable for me when that time came in my life, but it was something that had to be dealt with. I couldn't run from Jesus anymore. He was, if you will, hunting me down. And he was, he was pursuing me. And then when I started piecing everything together, I was like, oh, wow, that's why that happened. That's why that door closed. That's why that happened. Man, Lord, you're so good. And I'm such a sinner. <laughs> I've run for so long. No, but he's merciful. He's gracious. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. So you could know him. So I could know him. So we could praise him all the more. And so the remainder of our lives on this planet could be used for righteous deeds. Not for people to look at us, but for people to look at Christ and say, oh, I need that too. Jesus, I need you. <laughs> I need you to save my soul. I need you to resurrect my dead life. Truth be told, none of this stuff satisfies. You know it doesn't. I know it doesn't. You could try to fake it and act like it's all good. But unless Jesus Christ is the crux and the center of your existence... You're not satisfied. Praise God if you're in here this morning and he is sitting on the throne of your heart. I rejoice with you. That's a beautiful thing because you know where your joy comes from. It doesn't come from these external things. It doesn't even come from these external relationships. But it comes from the one who created you. Amen? That's such a beautiful thing. It is such a beautiful thing. Okay, let's look at verse 25. Man, I'm just jacked up right now today. I'm ready to just like run through a wall, play some football, do something. I'll probably end up, I'll probably end up in bed for a week. Veronica could be like, look, this fool. Try to, <laughs> but I, that's all I'm feeling right now. Praise God. Okay. Jesus said to her, speaking of Martha, again, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So right off the bat. And this is very interesting. And I think this is so important. I think people struggle so hard with this. But right off the bat, we need to come to terms with two irrefutable truths. You see, this is why people struggle so much with the Christian faith. Those that are, 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 are just combating it. 
two irrefutable truths in this life is that one, you're alive. You didn't ask to be here, but you're alive. You're living. You didn't ask to be in the body or the tent that you're in or be born into the family that you're in, but you're there. (laughs) So you're born. And the other irrefutable truth is you're going to die. I'm going to die. I I I can't fake it. I'm going to die. I'm alive. And one day, Lord willing, hopefully a long time from now, (laughs) I'm going to die. But those are two irrefutable truths. You see, the baby's like, yeah, don't be talking about it up in here. <laughs> Young. But the reality is many people don't even consider either. They don't. And what do I mean by this? Many simply take for granted the fact that they are alive. They take for granted the fact that they woke up today with no real physical pain or problems. Many times we take for granted our bodies and everything inside of them that work seamlessly perfect. We so consider, we so concerned with our outer exterior, but we don't really take, you know, time to think about, man, my heart's working. I don't have no blood clots. I don't have no pacemaker in my chest. My lungs are working properly. I don't got no spots on my lungs. I can breathe. I'm not wheezing all crazy. I don't need to use no inhaler. My eyes work. They're dilating perfect. My retina's fine. I got vision in both my eyes. My kidneys work. My kidneys work. I can drink something and go go urinate and it's not a big deal. My hands. I got all my fingers, my feet, you name it. A lot of times we take all those things for granted. It's almost as if some of us think we are entitled to live. I believe there's a generation upon us now, a young generation, where they feel like that. They think they're entitled. <laughs> they think they're, and I'm not bashing. I'm just calling it like I see it. It, it. It's what it is. That people, they just think they're entitled. They think they're entitled. You see... Without understanding that every breath you and I take is a great gift from God. Now take this. If some of these same people have a difficult time appreciating life, then they will most likely tune out completely the thought of death. The thought of death. That's why people drive down whatever, Milpitas Boulevard or wherever you live, going 70 miles per hour. And it's like, dude, it's 40 miles per hour. What are you doing? (laughs) You want to drive fast? Go to Laguna Seca. (laughs) Take up racing. Like, for real. Like, do it real with other people that want to drive fast and you can figure out who's got the skills. But fools be driving like clowns because they ain't got no concept of death. They just think they're invincible. They just think that they're, they're owed life. The Bible has something to say about those who go about life with this kind of mindset. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 4 tells us, A wise person, get this, thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Now, if the Holy Spirit has revealed this to you, you understand the wise person who thinks a lot about death is not some weird, morbid person with a black hoodie on that's listening to whatever kind of music and not seeing the light of day for 14 days in a row and doing weird cutting rituals in their room or whatever. And I'm not trying to stereotype, but I'm saying it's not a morbid thought of thinking about death all the time. It's a sober assessment of understanding, I didn't ask to be here. There's a creator that created me. I'm alive right now. One day I'm going to die. I'm going to be accountable for the life and the breath that I've been given. That's what Solomon was talking about here. You see, a wise person will eventually figure out by the grace of God that they didn't create themselves, that the life that they are living is a gift from God. And that one one day, excuse me, they will die a physical death no matter how much they try to avoid it. A fool, on the other hand, gives absolutely no thought to the reality of life or death and simply lives to indulge themselves in any and every pleasure they can find. And you see that going on in the world. It's like, what are you people doing? That's... that's, I believe it's a righteous dislike, (laughs) but I'll say, I hate that saying, 
Live your best life now. What that tells me is you care nothing for eternity. All you care about is doing what you want to do now, getting what you want to get now. It doesn't matter who you screw over, excuse my language, or, 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 or disrespect to get what you want. You'll do it because you're trying to live your best life now. I mean, to me, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that's not a good recipe for living. <laughs> it's, it just shows the selfishness and the greed of humans when we live like that. You see, we need to understand the weightiness of life and death to truly understand this passage that we're in this morning. In context, Jesus had just shown up after Lazarus died. Martha was grieved over the loss of her brother. She told Jesus that she believed that her brother would soon one day resurrect. It is here that we find Jesus lovingly correcting her about the resurrection and then in a way almost challenging her to stretch her faith concerning it. Because the next passage says, I am the resurrection and the life. The definition of resurrection is this. I love this definition and it's pretty cool because it's in uh, uh, the dictionary. The rising of Christ from the dead, often capitalized. The rising again to life of all human dead before the final judgment. The state of one risen from the dead. I mean, that's just straight up. I mean, that's pulling no punches. That is the definition of resurrection. Jesus did not claim to have resurrection and life or understand secrets about resurrection and life. Instead, Jesus dramatically said, He is the resurrection and the life. The application is simply this. To know Jesus Christ, to have a relationship with Him, is to know resurrection and life. To have Jesus is to have a resurrected life in him. You see, before you knew Christ, you and I were dead in our sins. But now that we know him, spiritually we have been resurrected. And one day we will be completely resurrected in body and spirit. You see, Martha looked upon the resurrection and the life as things that were to be in some dim, misty future. Many people today have that same type of view about the life to come. They're like, oh, well, you know... I mean, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it'll be okay. <laughs> but they, but <laughs> it's like, what are you basing that statement on? You really have no clear understanding of what life and death is. You see, but no, Christ says that he is the resurrection and the life. Not only does Jesus get these things by prayer from God the Father, but he himself is these things. Again, if we wrestle and we get stuck with the Trinity we're just going to be stumped. <laughs> you got to take some measure of faith to say, you know what, God, I take you at your word. <laughs> There's a Holy Trinity, <laughs> God, the Father, <laughs> Jesus Christ, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to leave it at that. Maybe in heaven, you'll, you'll reveal it to me and I'll understand it better. But I don't, I don't need to, I don't need a, I don't need a five point sermon to try to break that down. I just need to have the faith that believe hey, God, you said who you said, like you said, what do you tell Moses? I am that I am. That's it. Don't be asking me nothing else. I don't need to be giving you all these names. I am that I am. I'm a great I am. And that's it. <laughs> Apart from Jesus Christ, there is neither resurrection nor life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 down through uh, 19 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I think right there Jesus is saying he doesn't like that statement either about live your best life now. I'm not interjecting. I'm not adding to the Bible. I'm just saying that's an observation, right? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam 
all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Oh, that's a beautiful thing right there. You know, even though Adam brought sin into the world, the second Adam brought life back. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Jesus boldly challenged Martha and us to trust that he is the source of eternal life. You see, Jesus presented himself as the champion over death. While humanity in general fears death, the Christian can only fear dying. The believer will never die, but simply make an instant transition from the old life to the new. The application is this. Those that believe in Jesus Christ, even though they die physically, yet they live. And see, if you wrestle with that too, then I guess you're just going to find out when your clock ticks out here in this physical life. But you have to trust that, yes, though I'm going to pass from this life to the next, I'm just only passing through that great chasm. And that on the other side is eternal life for me in Jesus Christ. You see, physical death for the believer has no significance in regards to their eternal place of rest. They will not be in the grave. They will forever be with the Lord. They are not unconsciously, they are not unconsciously just floating around like some people would think, oh, well, I'll reincarnate as a dragonfly. Dude, I'm not coming back like that. I'm not coming back here. I'm not coming back as no roach. I'm not coming back as Harry Houdini. I'm not coming back as some random person. This is my one shot. And after I'm done, that's it. I'm gone. <laughs> I'm ghost. I'm out of here. I'm going to be with the Lord. It's a one-time shot, right? It's a one-time shot. That's it. We as believers will be with the Lord in paradise. Death cannot kill a believer. It can only usher him into a freer form of life. That's a quote from Charles Spurgeon, great Bible teacher of past. This is why the Bible makes it clear. Matthew chapter 16, verse 25 tells us, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Many people believe that in trying to squeeze the most out of this life, the happier and freer they will be. When in fact, it's the complete opposite. It is the giving up of yourself and the living wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ that makes you full of joy and gives you freedom unparalleled. It is Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. It is him who makes our path straight. It is him who is a light unto our paths. And I'm going to just share this other quote from Charles Spurgeon because I just think it's so cool. Death comes to the ungodly man as a penal infliction, but to the righteous as a summons to his father's palace. To the sinner, it is an execution. To the saint, it is an undressing. The death to the wicked is the king of terrors. Death to the saint is the end of terrors and the commencement of glory. Oh, see, it's all about perspective. What is our worldview? How are we perceiving things? And if we have a godly perspective, if we have a biblical perspective, then we can cope with the things going on and we're not shaken by all the craziness going on. And we're like, hey, the most craziest thing we're all going to face is death. It's not going to be the coronavirus. It's not going to be rumors of wars or wars to come. It's not going to be some nuclear holocaust. It's going to be when our time is up, maybe it might be in the peace of our own bed. Maybe it might be in a hospital. Maybe it might be on a plane. Maybe it might be in a car. But that's going to be when it really goes down. And will we have the right framework and the right perspective when we're dealing with death when it comes knocking at our door? We have to understand this, saints. It's so important. Jesus here makes an enormous claim. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Only the true and living God can say such things in truth. And here's our last verse, verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is where things get personal. <laughs> it gets real personal here. You see, the claims of Jesus Christ ultimately put a demand upon the hearer of his truth. The reality of who Jesus Christ is. Once he reveals himself to you and me, in a sense, it forces you and I to make a decision. You can't hear the good news of eternal salvation offered to you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and remain on the fence. 
James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25 tell us this. I love these verses. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearers who forgets, but also a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, application is so critical in the Christian life. We have to apply the knowledge that God reveals to us in his word. That's where the power kicks in. You know, it's very interesting when Jesus was healing people, he didn't just heal. He put a demand on people. If he saw a leper, he'd say, stretch out your hand. Do you believe you could be made whole? He didn't just heal. The person had to do something. A lot of times we're like, God, just do it. God, just do it. We're so lazy. God, just do it. When he's like, get up. Use the God-given abilities and gifts I've given you. And when you do your part... That's when I'm going to supernaturally kick in and I'm going to blow you away. And I'm going to just do something. You're just going to be, I can't even believe, Lord, how you came through. But we have to do our part. It's very interesting to me how, I, got, I, I just got to share this because this, this is, I believe it's so true. Okay, if we are soldiers in the army of God, I never heard of any army that doesn't have a militant aspect to it. But yet, why are we so passive as Christians? You're in the army of God. You're enlisted as a child of God in the army of God. There has to be an offensive uh, aspect to your spiritual life. You can't just be so lazy and loosey-goosey. And I'm not talking smack. I'm speaking to myself in this because I just see it all around where it's like we, we wonder why things are the way they are. But it's like, what has God given you in your sphere of influence? What, what gifts has he given you? What, what is the calling on your life? That's such a heavy burden for you to go out and do something for the Lord. That's why he resurrected so that your life could be saved so that you could mirror the moral image of God, of Jesus Christ, and be reflecting the light of him in this dark world so souls could get saved. So you could either plant or water, but he gives the increase, amen? It's such an important thing. But, but we have to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ to us? Do we believe this? You see, Jesus challenged Martha not to debate or to an intellectual assent, but to belief. But to belief, she must believe Jesus was who he said he was and that he could do what he said he could do. The application is this. At the end of the day, it's always going to come down to who do you and I personally say Jesus Christ is. On Judgment Day, he's not going to ask you what your parents thought, what your siblings or your aunts or your uncles or your cousins or your grandparents or your grandchildren or your friends or your co-workers said he was. He's going to be very direct in asking you, who did you say that he was? And do and did our lifestyles line up with what we profess with our mouth? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive his due for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And part of going before God's judgment seat is giving an answer to who Jesus Christ was in our lives. Lastly, as the worship team comes up, here we see uh, some would ask the question, <laughs> does this mean that, that Jesus wouldn't raise uh, her brother from the dead unless that she believed? Well, absolutely not. He had already determined to wake him out of his sleep. And here we see Martha's response. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Martha's, Martha answered correctly. You see, Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He is the Christ. He was and is the God of humanity. He came in human form. He is the Son of God. We have to notice when she says, I believe, it's, it's emphatic. 
whatever may be the case with others, she has put her trust in Jesus Christ. Her, her, her faith was a saving faith. It was a lasting faith. It was a faith that actually moved her to action. And the application is this. Our faith in Jesus Christ should be so strong that it governs our lives. Meaning we believe so strongly in the truth of Jesus Christ that we allow him through the power of the Holy Spirit to influence our lives, our decisions and what we choose to do. You see, a saving faith is far more than just intellectually believing and agreeing, saying, yes, I agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. A saving faith will produce a regenerated heart in Jesus Christ and healthy spiritual fruit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 down through 24 tells us, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This Easter Sunday, I truly pray that we not only remember that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, but that we are moved to truly submit every area of our lives to him. You see, he is love. He is peace. He is joy. He is mercy. He is grace. The only way to be fulfilled in this life is to have him. And the only hope for the life to come is to be found in Jesus Christ as well. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you that we can claim you as our risen Lord, that you are the savior of our lives, that you've conquered sin, you've conquered the grave, you've conquered death. There's nothing that stands in between you and your creation anymore. And now, Father, we have clear access to you. Lord, may we take it serious that we have this invitation to dine with you. You say that you'll come to the, the, the door of our heart and you'll knock. And if we invite you in, that you'll dine with us and we'll become friends. Lord, we'll, we'll enter into rest with you for eternity. Lord, we need you now. Lord, so please, would you do that work in our hearts? If there's any that have been on the fence about their relationship with you, may it be settled today that their spiritual eyes will be open, that they would accept you as their Savior and their Lord. Father, we thank you and we love you. We pray this all in Jesus Christ's wonderful name. Amen.